Well, good morning. Um, this morning we are starting a brand new series. Uh, as you can see, we are calling it Prayer Equals Life. Uh, let me just explain a bit of the thinking uh, behind it. Most people uh, would say that at least at some point in their lives, they pray. It's like pretty much the whole world prays. Uh, admittedly, there may be a small subset of atheists who may never ever pray, but even people who have no belief in God whatsoever, when they hit a tough time, they often still pray just in case there's something or someone out there. Pretty much everyone prays at some point in their life. If you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian, or if you're not quite sure what you believe, but you know you're in trouble you pray. And so to try and encourage people to pray isn't always particularly helpful because the entire world is already praying. The problem is prayer doesn't always change our lives anywhere near as much as it should or could. It's like most of the time we don't really expect it to make a whole lot of difference to our circumstances. And so prayer is often, at best, this peripheral thing. It doesn't excite us. It doesn't define us. It doesn't particularly shape what we do. In fact, we don't see it as relevant to most aspects of our day-to-day lives. And we certainly don't think of it as crucial to our very existence. Even for people who would say they've got a deep faith in God, prayer can easily become this ritual or routine or or at worst some sort of superstition. It can end up being reduced to the level of just remembering to shoot up a quick request to try and ensure that God is on our side. The Bible, though, has a very unique take on all of this. According to the Bible, Prayer is all about relationship. Prayer is our response to a living God who speaks and who acts and who comes incredibly close to us. And as we get to know him, it at least has the potential to change the whole of our life. That's prayer. It's relevant whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through in life. More than that is what life is all about, knowing God and walking through life with him. Prayer equals life. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, the next few months, is look at a whole range of examples from the Bible in which people from different backgrounds prayed and encountered God right in the midst of everyday life. We're going to learn from the prayers of some of the greats of the faith, people like Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Gideon and Hannah, Elijah, Nehemiah, David, Daniel, Mary, the Apostle Paul, uh, and of course Jesus himself. We're going to be looking at some of the most fascinating, some of the most intriguing, some of the most influential texts in all of world literature. And the passage that we're going to be focusing in on today is right up there with the very best of them. If you want to follow along, we're going to be camping out in Genesis chapter 18. We're going to be looking at Abraham's prayer for the city. 
If you're turning to it, let me just try and set the scene while you're finding it. Uh, Chapter 18 of the book of Genesis begins with three men coming to the door of Abraham's tent. Helps to understand that back then, uh, Near Eastern hospitality was such that if travellers passed by, you would always invite them in and offer to feed them. And so Abraham invites them in, and during the meal, it becomes apparent that one of the three guests was none other than the Lord himself in human form. Now, having finished the meal, the three eventually get up to leave and go on their way. Abraham follows them. Abraham goes with them. Uh, And we get to eavesdrop on this pretty remarkable conversation that takes place between Abraham and God. Got to pick it up in verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Three things I want us to learn from this passage. First of all, how Abraham prayed. 
Second, why he was able to pray like that. And third, how we today can get what Abraham had and even more. Let's start by looking at how Abraham prayed. First thing we see here is Abraham prays responsively. Have a look at verse 17. It's not like Abraham kind of shoots up a flare saying, oh God, are you out there somewhere? Now verse 17 tells us that the Lord himself takes the initiative. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now look, unless you really wanted to irritate someone, you probably never said out loud, should I tell you about this? Unless actually you want to tell the other person that thing. I mean, if later on, after the meeting, you were to say to me, should I tell you about this, Jonathan? I'm probably going to be slightly intrigued. I'm probably going to say, yes, I would now quite like to know what you're thinking about. And probably you're going to say, okay, go on then. Here it is. And so God is initiating this conversation. Abraham's prayer is merely a response to what God says. God's initial speech, God's initial comment provokes Abraham's prayer. It doesn't start with Abraham talking, it starts with God speaking to him. Now here's why this is important. If all we're doing when we pray is reaching out to God as we imagine God to be or as we prefer God to be, then it's never really going to change our life. If you pray to God as you hope he is, now we all say, I like to think of God like this. I prefer to imagine God a bit like that. If you pray to a God like you imagine God to be or you prefer God to be, your God is always and everywhere merely going to be a projection of you. When you say, I like to think of God like this, or I like to think of God like that, of course that will be comforting to you in the moment. But at the end of the day, that kind of God will never change your life, because that God cannot move you out beyond yourself, beyond your imagination. Listen, If you want to pray great prayers, if you would be quite keen for prayer to change your life, you need a real God, a a God who sometimes pushes back, a a God who can sometimes contradict you, a, a God who has a will and a word that can challenge your will, that can actually tell you something at times that personally you don't like. And so first of all then, Abraham prays responsively. He hears God's word and his prayer is a response to what God says to him. Second thing about Abraham's prayer here is is pretty extreme. Uh, On the one hand, it is extremely bold. It's almost as though Abraham is haggling or negotiating with God. Uh, As one commentator puts it, Abraham is a man who will not take yes for an answer. I mean, every time God says, I'll give you that, Abraham says, no, I've changed my mind, I want something more. That's not good enough, give me something else. I know a lot of religious people who would say, that's not the way you should talk to God. It's nowhere near formal enough, it's not respectful enough. On the other hand, although Abraham's prayer is far more bold, aggressive 
familiar than we might think is appropriate. He's also way more submissive and humble before the majesty of God than perhaps we're used to. See what he calls himself. Abraham says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Over and over again, he says, do not be angry with me. It's like he's ever so slightly scared. It's as though he's praying and taking his life into his hands, and he knows it. Now, those two things, those two extremes, they seem to be a bit of a contradiction, don't they? On the one hand, Abraham is far more aware of his unworthiness and his weakness than most of us are. When we think of God, we like to think of him as kind of a friend who is very loving. There's nothing scary, nothing frightening about it at all. On the one hand, Abraham is far more scared. He has a far deeper sense of his unworthiness before the cosmic majesty of God. Yet at the same time, he's also much more confident that God wants to bless than most of us are. He has this incredibly majestic view of God. There's a real sense of reverence and awe, even fear. And he also has this phenomenal view of God's love. And he puts these two extremes together. He's scared. Yet at the same time, he's very familiar with God. It's an adventurous prayer. It's a risky prayer. But at the same time, it's an intimate prayer, a passionate prayer. It's alive, pumping with life. I'll tell you why. Abraham has a vision of God that he didn't make up himself. I mean, nobody would have made up a God this holy and this loving at the same time. We tend to either see God as sort of high and lifted up and remote, or we see God as kind of our best mate. Abraham puts both together. He never could have made up this kind of God. Nobody would have done. But Abraham knows this God is a living God. He's a real God. He's infinitely loving and infinitely holy at the same time. And it creates, it stirs, it builds this incredible prayer life. Neither formal nor vague, but alive and personal and real. It's adventurous, it's risky, it's passionate, it's intimate all at once. It's extreme, extremely humble, extremely bold. He also prays missionally. What do I mean by that? I think if we're being honest, I guess when you and I pray, we would have a tendency to pray in order to get our needs met. But you notice how Abraham is taking his face-to-face relationship with God and he's not leveraging it for his own needs. It's amazing. God says in verse 20, there's been an outcry against Sodom. The word outcry It's a Hebrew word that means the cries of the victims of violent injustice. Sodom represents a society that's oppressing violently the marginalized, the weak, the poor. Sound familiar? Hard, isn't it, not to think of the dreadful plight of the Syrian refugees that's filling our news 
right now. God says, I'm going down there because I've heard the cry of the poor and marginalized being trampled to death in Sodom. And if that's what's going on, then I'm going to judge it. Abraham knows exactly how wicked those cities are. And what does he say? Verse 24, he pleads with God to spare them. He's asking God to forgive them. Now, why is Abraham doing that? Well, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. If I remember correctly, Abraham has got a nephew called Lot who lives in Sodom. So that's the reason he's asking God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Not so altruistic after all. But surely, if all Abraham wanted was to get Lot and his family out, why doesn't he just say that? I mean, it would have been much easier, wouldn't it, to have said, God, I agree with you. Those people are terrible. Please get down there and smite them, and quickly. But before you do that, would you just get Lot and his family out first? He doesn't do that. Never even mentioned Lot. He seems to care about the whole city. It's a wicked city. It's a terrible city. It's an evil place. But what he says to God is, spare it. Do you see, Abraham is using the face-to-face relationship that he has with God, and he's trying to leverage it for blessing for this wicked pagan city. He's not concerned primarily with himself. He's not there with his own personal shopping list. God, give me this, give me that, bless me, uh, help me get all of my personal goals, my personal peace and happiness and prosperity. Now he's laying himself out in prayer for the good of the people around him including these people who are doing evil. It's like he sees beyond himself and he loves them. He cares in some way for them. He cares for the whole city. Is that how you pray? Are your prayers dominated by the needs of this city? Especially the parts you don't like. Especially the people that you don't like. Do you pray for this city? Do you pray for the people around you like this? Do you pray with this kind of humble boldness, this passion? It's challenging, isn't it? So secondly, let's turn our attention to why Abraham was able to pray like this. What's the secret to this prayer life that is so outwardly focused and unselfish, so adventurous and risky, so passionate and intimate? Why can he pray like that? Well, here's the secret. I think the secret to Abraham's prayer life, and we've touched on this a bit already, is Abraham's understanding of who God is. First of all, he says in verse 25, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's a rhetorical question. In other words, it's a statement. Of course, God's a just God. That's the first thing. It's incredibly important. No matter what else, one thing we know is a given, God is a God of justice. Abraham, he wants to get a reprieve for Sodom and Gomorrah, but one thing he knows is God is not going to shrug off his justice. He's a righteous God. And he'd better be. I mean, what hope is there? Look at the world. 
Look at the injustice around us. Look at all the wrongs that are being done. What hope is there for the world unless there's a God of justice who someday is going to put everything right? If there is no God of justice, then there is no hope for the world. But Abraham was confident that God is a God of justice. And so he prays. The other thing that Abraham knows about God is he's also a God of grace. Verse 18, God promises that Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. I don't know. Maybe when Abraham was first chosen by God, he thought, oh, it's because I'm a pretty impressive person. But by the time we get to Genesis 18, Abraham knows that's not true. He's already let God down. He's failed God. He's failed at times to believe God. He's done all kinds of stupid things. Yeah, guess what? Here's God still coming to lunch. Here's God still coming and meeting with him face to face. By now, Abraham knows firsthand that God forgives, that God pardons, that God loves. He's, he's a God of grace. And so Abraham says, I know you're a God of justice, and that will never, ever go away. You can't just shrug that off, but I also know you're a God of love, and you want to spare people, and you want to love the undeserving. Therefore, as a result of that, won't you please spare the whole city for the sake of the few righteous? Do you see, he's not saying, Lord, you're righteous, you're perfect, and they deserve judgment. But you know, just this once, wouldn't it be all right if you just sort of kind of gave them a break? He knows he can't do that. He can't say, God, please lay aside your righteousness. But here's what he says. You love righteousness so much wouldn't it be possible that if there were just a few righteous people living in the city, you love righteousness so much, could you not, for your love of those righteous people, give a reprieve for the whole city? You know, it's a clever argument. There's a sense, isn't there, in which sometimes the guilt of the few is imputed or passed on to the many. For example, if someone in our community or someone in our family or someone in our place of work does something dreadful, don't we all at times feel responsible to some degree? Don't we all feel like we should have seen that coming? We should have stepped in and tried to prevent it in some way. Of course we think like that. It's like sometimes the unrighteousness of the few transfers and condemns the many. And so Abraham flips that way of thinking. He turns it around and says, couldn't the righteousness of these people over here save these unrighteous folks here? Couldn't it be passed on, imputed somehow to them? Couldn't there be some way in which it covers it? That way, you could both be a righteous God, honoring the righteous but at the very same time, saving the undeserving. Isn't that possible? And God says, yes. Abraham's like, great. Okay, let me get this straight. You'd forgive that city for the sake of 50 righteous people. God says, yes, absolutely. Okay, how about 45? 
I mean, sorry, for the sake of five people, we wouldn't fall out over that. Yeah, yeah, okay, 45. How about 40? Yeah, says God. Great. How about 30? Again, God says yes. Uh, Well, 30 is close to 20. Let's just round it down. How about 20? Again, God says yes. Okay, how about 10? Once more, yes. But then, in what must be one of the most unexpected endings to a story in the whole Bible, Abraham goes home. It's as though he had God on the ropes and he just left and went home. I mean, we're reading this, what are we expecting him to do next? What was the final question we expect Abraham to ask? Which way is this going? We expect Abraham here at the very end to say, Lord, let me speak just once more. Let me be so bold as to put this suggestion to you. Would you save the whole city for the sake of just one righteous person? Just one. Do you love righteousness so much that righteousness of the one could be passed on, could be imputed to the whole? And we expect the Lord to say, yes, Abraham, I'll save the city for one righteous person. But Abraham never asks the question. And God never gives the answer. And God goes down and judges the city, and the city is lost. Why doesn't Abraham keep going? Well, I'm guessing here. This is just me speculating. But I reckon Abraham knows that in reality, there isn't one truly righteous person in that city. And if you know anything about the story, Lot certainly wouldn't fit the requirements. But guess what? Neither does Abraham. And he knows it. It's like the ultimate problem. If there is no God of justice and righteousness, there is no hope for the world. We said that just a moment ago. But if there is a God of justice and righteousness, what hope is there for you and me? Because who can truly stand before him? Do you see how close Abraham got to solving this problem? If we could just try and find somewhere one absolutely, truly righteous person, wouldn't God, who loves righteousness for the sake of his love of that righteous person, save the many because of the righteousness of the one? The only flaw in the plan is he doesn't have that one righteous person. Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah the undeserving cities. He he acted a bit like a priest. He stood right there face to face in front of God on behalf of the people. He prayed passionately. He made intercession for them. But ultimately, he couldn't quite pull it off. But get this, many centuries later, someone came along who could. Abraham, kept saying, I'm representing these people, but please don't be mad at me. Jesus, the only truly righteous person ever to have lived, represented us and took the cosmic wrath of divine justice onto himself. Listen, on the cross, 
Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. That one act of absolutely pure, perfect love was perfect righteousness. And so today, about to enter back into worship, hold this thought. We can ask the question, Lord, for the sake of one righteous man, one righteous woman, one righteous man, would you save us undeserving people? God the Father answers by pointing to Jesus, his son, and saying, yes, but only if it's him. And it is. As Hebrews 7 puts it, Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, for he ever lives to intercede for them. And so, all that being said, how can we today, right here, now, in this room, get what Abraham had? And more. But as we've seen, Abraham points to Jesus, who's the true Abraham, the true high priest. Abraham understood that though God was holy, he was also loving. And therefore, there must be some way in which God can save undeserving people and still uphold his righteousness and justice. He knew there must be a way. And even knowing that was enough to give Abraham this incredible, deep relationship with God. But you know what? You have got a massive advantage. You've got a massive head start on Abraham. You know how it happened. You have the gospel. You have the good news about Jesus. And once you have that, you can have an even more dynamic, life-giving relationship with God even than Abraham had. Let me quickly suggest three ways. First of all, uh, understanding the gospel creates incredible humility and boldness in us. If you understand the gospel, that you're so wicked and lost that God had to die for you, I mean, that's humbling, isn't it? Yet at the same time, you're so loved that God was glad to die for you. Suddenly, that gives you boldness and courage before him, doesn't it? And so now you have the same extremes that Abraham had, and even more so. On the one hand, you're in awe before a God so great that the galaxies are like dust on the scales to him. Yet this same God cares for you at infinite cost to himself. See, if you just say, oh, I believe in a God of love, that's never going to be a love that melts you. That's not a love that energizes you. That's not a love that's going to give this incredible prayer life. But if you see God's love in the form of Jesus dying for you, that has the power to transform everything. If you understand the gospel, it will create that incredible humility and boldness that Abraham had. Secondly, understanding the gospel gives you the ability to both stand against evil and at the same time pray for the good of the city. Listen, the gospel gives you an attitude towards the world around you like Abraham had. You see, the message of the gospel isn't that the good, deserving people are in and the evil ones are out. 
Now the gospel message is that the humble who admit they're evil, they're in. And the proud who won't admit they're evil are out. Do you know what that means? It means you can stand against evil. You can call it for what it is. You can confront things that are wrong. You say no to injustice. You can take a stand against it. While at the same time, willing the good of the whole city, praying for God's blessing on the city, looking for peace and justice, the grace and mercy of God to come. You'll get this attitude towards the city that Abraham had. And then last of all, there are no three sub-points to this last of all. Understanding the gospel gives you the courage to ask God for big things. Abraham, he kept coming back and saying, I want more. You say, but he didn't actually get what he asked for, did he? Well, yes and no. Actually, Lot did escape. Chapter 19, we're told that God did it because Abraham made this prayer. You may never know what you're going to get when you ask. But here's the one thing. Surely this passage trumpets the message loud and clear. Ask God for big things. Be bold. Plead in line with God's own attributes. Remind him of what he has said in his word. Go after him. Why? Because that shows that you believe you're a sinner saved by grace. You you know that ultimately God holds all the cards. He has all the power. He's sovereign over all. And you also know he has all the love in the world for you. That means you're going to go after the problems of the world. You're going to go after big things with God in prayer. To quote a hymn that I know I've quoted before, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power as such, none can ever ask too much.